Me and my sister almost died at the hands of a witch. Now, we travel the world hunting them. I'm not going to have you telling me what to do. That's no ordinary witch. There's something else going on here. Burn them all. Succeed, it'll be hell on earth. You gotta be kidding me. Greetings, everyone. You're listening to Treks in Sci Fi, the weekly geeky podcast. Uh, today is January 27th, 2013, and this will be podcast 421 for Treks in Sci Fi. <laughs> anyway, what you heard there at the little bit uh, at the beginning of the show is a little TV spot uh, trailer for uh, Hansel and Gretel. Hansel and Gretel, even though they never talk like that in the in the movie, but Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters is a new movie, a fantasy film that just came out uh, on Friday. I actually went to see it yesterday and enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit more than I thought I would even, and uh, I'll talk a little bit about that on today's show. Uh, but the main topic that we're going to cover on this week's um, edition of the podcast is uh, a classic sci-fi series, a short-lived sci-fi series uh, way back from the 70s, uh, one of my uh, pretty much favorite shows of all time and and something that I uh, enjoyed a lot when I first saw it and still do. It is called uh, Man from Atlantis. Uh, not the Man from Atlantis, just Man from Atlantis is the official name. Anyway, it is a, a show that starred Patrick Duffy way back in the day, and uh, I think it was 1977, basically, to 78. Only lasted for uh, a, a single season, and it is just a show that's sort of near and dear to my heart for a number of reasons. And I've talked about it off and on on multiple podcasts over the years doing the show. Uh, a few uh, special occasions when I covered like what I called underwater sci-fi. I think I did a show like that once. And it's been talked about, but today I'm going to cover it in, in, in more depth and, and fully on the show. wanted to dedicate kind of one podcast to it uh, since it's a, a just... Just a show that I've always enjoyed, and I think it still kind of holds up. Uh, so we'll be talking about that today. Got some uh, Trek and and uh, some pretty big uh, Star Wars news, and somewhat uh, crossing over into Trek land. Uh, but uh, some people listening probably already know what I'm going to talk about, but I'll talk more about it on the show in case some of you out there have not heard about this. Uh, all that and more on today's Treks in Sci-Fi.
Yeah, that was the uh, opening musical theme from Man from Atlantis, uh, music by Fred Carlin. Uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the show was the music. Very uh, appropriate, I thought, for the for the show and for the setting. So we'll talk more about that here uh, shortly on today's podcast. So how's everybody doing? It's been, well, I, I was on the show last week on that uh show with Chris where we talked about the sort of Deep Space Nine 20th anniversary. So it's uh, not been that long since I did a podcast, I guess, although technically we recorded that a little sooner. Uh, and uh, I'd just like to welcome everyone uh, back to Trucks and Sci-Fi. If you're a longtime listener, welcome again. And if you are fairly new to the podcast, hey, I'm glad to have you. A couple little details. If you uh, ever want to get in touch with me and the, and the show, uh, treksf at gmail.com is the best uh, way to do that. If you have uh, you know, the burning desire to do a guest spot, I usually have a couple of those available each month. And February is pretty much filled up now as of this morning. And I'll be talking about the upcoming uh, schedule for the podcast uh, later in today's show. Uh, but uh, just drop me an email if you ever have anything you want to talk about or record me a little audio file to play on the show or review of a book or a movie or a TV show or whatever in, in the world of geekdom that you're enjoying these days. I'm always happy to play things from the listeners. And uh, let's see, what should we start with? I'm not going to really talk about the weather because it's cold and freezing, or it was this past week, but it is getting better here a little bit this week. We're getting a little relief. So uh, I will talk, though, about Hansel and Gretel witch hunters. I cannot say Hansel and Gretel without saying it like that. <laughs> or were they like Austrian or German supposed to be? Something like that. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I saw it yesterday, Mark, and I saw it. It's it's a it's a pretty quick movie, only about ninety minutes, and uh, it moves pretty pretty fast. And I thought it was pretty good. I, it was Jeremy Renner, and uh, I think her name is Gemma or Gemma Artiton. I think is that how you say her last name? I think she's English. I think she's from the UK, and she was in a Bond film. I think she was in wasn't she in uh, Casino Royale? Is that right? But anyway, uh, they play Hansel and Gretel, the witch hunters, and basically it's that. It's sort of the Hansel and Gretel story, uh, but them uh, growing up and, and, and hunting witches who, who you know, they had a little run-in with witches when they were young, and now they hunt them. And it, it's sort of, uh, uh, they squish together kind of sort of a modern kind of take on, on the story and and some of the language and, and, and the way they speak in the movie is uh, more modern. It's actually rated R for, I guess, some of the violence and the things they show and, and some of the language, too. There is some language in this movie, uh, which seemed a little out of place for the time. I'm not really sure they necessarily needed that. Uh, it... Uh, it, it, every time they used, let's just say, a, you know, a word that starts with the letter F, <laughs> which happened a few times in the movie, it kind of took me a little out of the movie. But I'm not going to say too much more about that. Uh, but I will say that I enjoyed it. I thought that it was a fun movie. I like these kinds of films. Uh, I actually liked Van Helsing. I, I like the Underworld films. Uh, there's something about this sort of fantasy. Constantine sort of falls into this category a little bit. Something about this sort of supernatural fantasy, shoot 'em up slash you know, uh, you know, good versus evil. Something about that kind of a movie I enjoy quite a bit, and uh, I'm glad that I went to see it. It, it was a lot of fun. And 90 minutes to me, uh, it moved it along good, and uh, it, it, it there are a couple tiny little parts where it dragged. I thought maybe just a tiny bit, but nothing really bad. And uh, it was good. Oh, uh, another person in the movie was Famke. How do you say her last name? 
I don't know. She played, you know, Jean Grey Phoenix in the X-Men movie. She was, of course, on TNG. Uh, but uh, she is is one of the witches and uh, does a good job. So if you like this kind of thing, I think you'd enjoy this. If this isn't your cup of tea, if the Underworld films or, or uh, Van Helsing and, and that kind of stuff, where the, it sort of has a steampunk vibe to it a little bit too. So, uh, But if you like that kind of stuff, uh, go check it out and, and see what Hansel and Gretel are doing in Hunting Witches on the big screen. I'm Jen. And I'm Angela from the Anomaly Podcast. And you're listening to Treks and Sci-Fi. All right, I'm going to segue right into uh, the, the big sort of geeky Star Trek, Star Wars news of uh, just a few days ago this week. Uh, the big news is J.J. Abrams, the director of the 2009 Star Trek film, the director of the upcoming Star Trek Into Darkness uh, that's coming out in May, he has been uh, hired by uh, Disney to direct the first of the new Star Wars trilogy films that's due out in 2015, Episode 7, basically, as it's being called. Uh, And uh, this is kind of a shock, kind of a surprise, especially since recently there have been some quotes and interviews with J.J. saying, you know, he is a big Star Wars fan. However, he's he feels, you know, Star Trek is what he's working on these days and he wanted to stick with it and, and kind of his loyalty lies there. Now, that kind of goes against a little bit of what uh, now has turned out to be. It sounds like they've been kind of courting him and, and trying to get him over uh, to direct Star Wars for a little while now. Kathleen Kennedy and George Lucas uh, both uh, very impressed and, and happy with his uh, way of doing films and his movies and his style. So they uh, they want him aboard the Star Wars wagon and franchise. Uh, so this, uh, I'm excited by it. I'm not really, you know, very upset or disappointed. I don't feel like, I'm sure there are some fans out there that might feel he's sort of, you know, being a traitor, you know, he doing Star Trek and now he's going off. I think they can get another good director to do uh, Star Trek in the future, you know, to do a potential if the second movie here is, is, is turns out well and it makes some good money, which I firmly believe that's going to be the case. I think it's going to be a great movie. I think it's going to do very well. So I fully expect we'll get a third, at least another movie with this sort of cast and setting. Uh, and I think... It's you know I'm fine with JJ going off and directing Star Wars. He loves Star Wars. He he's he's admitted admitted that over the years that you know he grew up on it and it, he has a big passion for it and he knows Star Wars. So I think he's going to do a great job with with directing that. He you know JJ to me is a, is a really good director with actors. Uh, I think he's going to make a very interesting Star Wars movie. I don't think it'll just be a lot of special effects. He does that well too, but I think he knows story and I think he knows characters and actors. So I'm really excited by what he's going to bring to Star Wars. I think he's a good, definitely a good pick. Uh, on the Star Trek side of things, there was an also another recent report uh, just yesterday I read about this, and, and I think this is pretty much confirmed. I saw it over on comingsoon.net, I think, uh, but it is, um, it's been pretty well confirmed that if there is a third 
uh, Trek film, that J.J. would stay aboard that in the, in the you know, in sort of a producer slash executive producer role. They'd probably have to hire someone else to direct it, but uh, he would still be connected to it in some way. So it's not like I think they had to, you know, he had to swear off doing anything. It's like somebody who works for Coca-Cola going to work for Pepsi. I doubt you could still do any work for Coca-Cola anymore, but it seems like they're going to allow him to still work for uh, a little bit on the Trek side of things if, if need be. Uh, hopefully they will never have one of these films come out in the same year. We, you know, we won't get a Star Trek and a Star Wars movie in the same in the same year. I think that would be a mistake. Uh, but uh, and then he's also still connected to the Mission Impossible franchise, which really had a big hit with last year's Ghost Protocol. It le- it looks like they're going to do at least another one of those with JJ aboard as a producer for that as well. So. Uh, you know, all good news all around, I think, and I, I'm really excited by him doing Star Wars. I, I think it's it's real important for them to do a good job with this next Star Wars film in, in 2015 to not only have, just be able to balance the fact that this is going to be somehow connected to, you know, the episode, you know, the last episode, episode six, of course, is going to be set probably years and years later. But, you know, to be able to bridge that gap and make it uh, seem cohesive is going to be important to do the right story and and that and and also obviously to have a good director. I think it's going to be it's going to be a tricky thing to pull off. And I think they're really assembling a a, a solid team. They've got a script writer now uh, and J.J. aboard and a bunch of other people. And of course, Lucas is still connected. Kathleen Kennedy, you know, I, I just I'm very, very excited by what I've been seeing and hearing, you know, I, I've uh, I've let it be known on the podcast for a long time that I've I followed J.J. Abrams and enjoyed everything really he's ever worked on, to varying degrees. But even back in the days when he first did work on the on the TV show Alias, uh, was one of the first things that I thought that I was very impressed with that, uh, you know, basically a weekly spy show slash movie, you know, with Jennifer Garner that I think was a, a just a great show. You know, and, and Lost, I had its, my ups and downs with that. Uh, but, you know, he's done a lot of good TV, interesting TV. I love Person of Interest. He's connected to that series. Uh, I also love Fringe. And, and of course, I, I was very, very happy with the 2009 Trek film, even though, you know, it's, it's quite a bit different than other Trek, but I think it's uh, what we need these days. And uh, I'm still thinking, you know, when they do a Trek TV series, we'll get back to more what you know star trek is typically about you know exploring strange new worlds you know a crew on a ship you know flying around the galaxy doing whatever but for the movies i think they just needed to do something a little different and and i think it's uh, it's working at least for me so this is uh, the big news <laughs> it really big news and i'm excited by it so we'll see what happens uh, on, uh, on another uh story that i wanted to pass on a couple of little trek related things i read uh, out at your comic book stores, there's a couple of uh, comics you guys may be interested in. Uh, there's this new Dark Horse Star Wars series, which uh, has sold very, very well, uh, that I picked up the first issue of that, even though Marvel's going to start doing uh, Star Wars comics probably a year or so from now. But Dark Horse will be able to run with this probably for about a year, I would guess, and I'm enjoying that. But the other thing more related to Trek is the first prequel comic i guess you could call it prequel series it, this is a, a four issue set that is being put out uh, by idw the star trek comic book uh, folks right now 
and they uh, are doing a, this prequel comic. They kind of did a similar thing for the last Trek film uh, for that. Uh, and this one is, uh, you know, it's called uh, a Countdown, Countdown to Darkness, I think is the official title for it. But it's uh, supposed to be setting things up for the Star Trek Into Darkness movie. And I read the, actually got the issue, read it yesterday, and uh, liked it. It, it. There are little touches in there, little things in it uh, that... Uh, I, I'm trying to figure out from seeing the IMAX nine-minute preview and seeing the other previews for the movie how this is all going to play into it. I don't think there's a whole lot that they gave away, although the last... I won't say what it is exactly, uh, but uh, you can find out online if you don't want to read the comic. There's reviews of this, and, and they tell you everything that happens. But the very last page, the last panel of the comic for issue one of this series has sort of a big reveal that may have some importance to the movie. I guess it probably will to some level or degree, but it was an interesting thing, I thought. Basically, a, a, a character shows up that uh, was a little bit of a surprise and kind of interesting. And this is this character has been talked a little bit about in some of the Star Trek rumor and, and scuttlebutt and stuff that's been going on for the movie. So uh, anyway, I'm not going to say I'll, I'll tease you with that. Go visit your comic store or... Uh, or I think you can probably get it digitally if you'd like uh, on your iPad or whatever phone or device you have. Uh, you can buy it, I'm sure, electronically. They, they've been doing that more and more these days. So pick it up, though. I think it's a, it's a good read, and I'm going to get the other issues. And uh, I, I was very happy with the way they did the prequel comic series for the Star Trek 2009 movie because I think they did a good job of kind of giving us a little backstory but not anything to me that I felt like the, the movie was spoiled or ruined or, or, or that there was any problems. I think it actually added to my enjoyment of the film uh, and did not, uh, they, they, they kind of walked that line where they were able to give me a little background, a little, little stuff and little information that just kind of got me uh, more excited to see the movie. And then I, I was, when I saw the movie, I was like, oh, okay, I understand this, why this is going on. And because obviously, when you see that movie, the the 2000, 2009 movie, I wish they would have named it more than just Star Trek sometimes. Because <laughs> I always have to call it the 2009 Star Trek movie, because if you just say the Star Trek movie, uh, okay, which one are you talking about? You know, I know the other ones had like subtitles for the most part, but... So with that movie, though, it starts out right in the, you know, big things start to happen. You know, Nero's ship comes in and, and, and you know, attack Kirk's, attacks Kirk's father's ship and, and just lots of stuff goes on. And, you know, the Kelvin gets pummeled by this big monster ship. And you don't really know until kind of later on, well, what's going on. But, you know, with seeing that prequel, you kind of have a feel for where all this started from and what was the reasoning behind it and stuff. So... Okay, I'm about 20 minutes or so into this podcast, so we definitely need to get going on Atlantis and Man from Atlantis, the TV series from 77. So we will be doing that um, after uh, a short break. Make it so. Hi, we're the Trek Make Podcast. Join us each week for the latest Star Trek news, in-depth discussions, and some pretty cool guests. And as you will soon find out, we're a podcast that loves to play games. So join us each week for trivia and competitions galore, where you'll be able to win real prizes. Find us at trekmates.org.uk, or on iTunes, Stitcher, and where all cool podcasts are available. Program complete. Enter when ready. Okay, 
the TV series Man from Atlantis. Uh, Man from Atlantis is a short-lived American science fiction television series that ran for 13 episodes on the NBC network during the 1977 to 1978 season. This followed four successful television films, TV kind of movies of the week that aired uh, earlier in 77. And basically the, uh, the premise of this show is it starred actor Patrick Duffy as uh, Mark Harris. And he is basically believed to be uh, the only surviving citizen of the lost civilization of Atlantis. He is basically Aquaman. You could think of him as that. I mean, he is is someone who can breathe underwater. He has uh, fish-like abilities. He can swim very fast. He has sort of webbed hands and, and feet. He has uh, eyes that are very sensitive to light, so they allow him to see deep in the ocean. And uh, he's uh, he doesn't really be able ever to communicate with fish exactly, although he, he makes comments throughout the movies and the TV series that he can understand some of what the, the, the language or the, the, the sounds that like whales make and, and other animals under the sea. So uh, so he's obviously has a lot of abilities in the ocean. Outside the ocean, outside the water, he is, you know, pretty ordinary and, and actually he becomes weakened by being out of the water for enough for for hours it it slowly will sort of dry him out and he has to get back to the water so he needs water to survive needs to be in the water and and that's his sort of natural uh natural element i guess you could call it um the uh the show basically like i said started out with these television films the first one of course was the the pilot episode which set the stage for the series and the actors were there patrick duffy uh, there was uh, Belinda Montgomery played Elizabeth, who was a sort of scientist doctor. Uh, she she was the one that sort of discovers Mark, uh, Elizabeth Merrill, and she's the one that actually saves his life after he washes up on shore. What I'm going to do as I talk a little bit about some of the, the show and what I liked and and, uh, and so forth, uh, but I'm going to play, I'm going to basically go through the just the, and play clips from the pilot episode and kind of give you a taste of that because I think it's a very good pilot and I think it gives you a, uh, a just a good feel for the for what the show is like and you get to meet the sort of uh, main villain who, who turns up in a number of episodes from this series, uh, Victor Bono, who plays uh, Schubert. He plays this crazy mad scientist uh, named Schubert that uh, sort of is a, a Mark's uh, foil and nemesis and uh, he is... Uh, <laughs> He's he's great, and, and you know he you know he's he he was on the old Batman '60s TV sh- series, and you know he replaced Mr. Schubert, just this larger than life, crazy mad scientist character, and uh, so uh, so that's kind of the show. Uh, some of you who are listening probably know the show, have seen the show, and maybe some of you have never heard of it or never seen it, or maybe you've heard of it, yeah, but you've never experienced it. I wanted to say too at the beginning here. One of the reasons I wanted to do this show is that uh, after after years and years, and I thought it would never, ever happen, but uh, Warner Brothers finally put out uh, on DVD, no Blu-ray, unfortunately, but at least we have DVD. They put out two sets of DVDs. I have them here in my hands right now. Uh, one is the uh, what's called the Complete TV Movies Collection, and it contains the the four movies that led up to the TV series for Man from Atlantis. It contains the pilot episode. Uh, it contains the next one that was shown 
Uh, I'll go through these. Let's see. The pilot was uh, first aired on March 4th, 1977. The next one was called The Death Scouts, and that was aired on May May the 7th, 1977. Pretty close to when the first Star Wars movie you know, came out. And then they did another one that was on just a, a couple of weeks after that called Killer Spores on uh, May 17th, 1977. That actually, interesting thing about that movie, for me at least personally, is that one I kind of missed and had to see it a long time later when, when I caught a rerun of it on TV. Uh, but uh, I saw the pilot, I saw the Death Scouts movie, the Killer Spores I missed and, and had to see that later. And then the last one of these pilot films was uh, uh, called The Disappearances, and that was on June 20th, 1977. So pretty pretty close together. The first one in March, two in May of that year, and then one in June. And those did very well in the ratings. And they basically, uh, NBC decided to go to a TV series for this in the fall of uh, 1977. And I know during the summer that year, I remember seeing little commercials on TV that this, you know, this, this show was going to, or this set of movies, this character and this situation was going to be turned into a regular a weekly tv series and uh, one thing again i've said a few times to keep in mind unlike these days with cable tv and netflix and you know all kinds of geeky shows on television uh, you know we it, there was nothing really hardly on back then so getting a tv series uh, a sci-fi kind of show about this guy who can breathe underwater uh, was just amazing to me, and I, I was very excited when I heard it was going to be turned into a TV series. The TV episodes, I'll talk a little bit later in the podcast about these after we go through the pilot movie a bit, but, you know, they were hit or miss. Some were really good, I thought. Some were kind of mixed, you know, and okay, and some were just kind of almost almost campy to the point of not, you know, really, really kind of weak stories, I thought. And, and uh, it was a mixed bag, I guess, is, you know, sometimes I wonder if they had, they had to kind of go to a series pretty quickly. And I wonder if they just had had a little more time to prep and do more better writing. I, I think the, the series might have really taken off. And it kind of uh, later on then became sort of this cult thing where, other you know people would see it and and say man what happened to that you know there's some really good stuff there and i think especially the cast the cast always played things very seriously you know as in you know they didn't uh it isn't like the batman 60s tv series where they they were kind of winking and nodding at the camera all the time uh this this show was a uh, you know a serious sci-fi show and sort of a precursor to other kind of underwater uh, shows later on that we'd get, like Sequest and stuff like that. But in this case, you only had one one guy who had these special abilities who would help out with problems related to anything going on with the oceans or, or things like that. Uh, they would have Mark come in and try to figure out what's going on and help out, so... Uh, let's get to the pilot episode and give you some clips. Uh, it starts out with there's this sort of big storm, and, and this guy is washed up on the on the beach at night, and uh, he's he's not breathing very well. You can hear him kind of wheezing, and they rush him to the hospital, and they can't seem to be able to figure out what to do or what's wrong with him. And uh, Dr. Merrill, Dr. Elizabeth Merrill, uh, played by Belinda Montgomery, who went on later to be Doogie Howser's uh, mother on that TV series. You'll recognize her from that. She uh, is called in. She's an expert on, you know, uh, she's a scientist, expert on aquatic life. And I'm not really sure. It's not really clear in the pilot why they call her in. 
But uh, she is called into the hospital to take a look at this guy and figure out what's going on. And his hands are all darkened, and they they see these, like, webbed hands that he's got. Anyway, uh, the first clip that I got here for you is when she's at the hospital and she's looking down in Mark's throat and, and describing kind of what she's seeing. So here you go. Are you sure you wouldn't just like to go back to the party? Doug, I want a bronco. I'm looking into the base of the left bronchial branch. Getting down into the lung stem. Now I can see. Elizabeth? Call an ambulance. Elizabeth, what is it? If I told you, you wouldn't believe it, just call an ambulance. Look, if you've got a theory, let's have it. The man is dying. I know how to save him. Now, get those lights off and get the tubes out of him. We can't just release him to you. It's 12 feet to that door. Either you're going to help me get him out of here or I'm going to do it myself. Doctor, we can't just let him go. Well, doctor, I'm taking him. You heard the lady. So, Dr. Merrill, uh, you know, she obviously sees something down there in, in Mark and... Uh, well, they don't know he's Mark or don't call him that at this point. But then she gets him in an ambulance. They rush out to the beach, to the ocean, and they uh, they then uh, take him, uh, get him out into the water. And she's sort of moving him around through the water, kind of like you'd move like, you know, don't sharks have to keep moving to breathe? Isn't that correct? So she's kind of, she has him and he's kind of floating there in the water with his head in the water. She's moving him through it, uh, trying to force water down in through him. And all these other guys are just kind of watching what she's doing. These ambulance guys, like, are you drowning that guy? They don't even really say anything. But anyway, here's a clip from that scene. I enjoyed that scene when uh, when I saw it again here, collecting the clips this morning. He he kind of turns over and looks up at her with these sort of glowing green eyes. He has these, uh, Patrick Duffy was fitted with these special contact lenses. And back in these days, they, uh, you know, from what I've heard and read, uh, they were very uncomfortable. And uh, But they, they really had this sort of green luminescent look to them. And even under a few inches of water as he's staring up at her, when he starts to breathe and he's okay, uh, it, it really is, is a really good effect. 
And, you know, this is back in the day when there wasn't really a lot of, you know, they couldn't just digitally paint things in like that. Uh, so everything here is done uh, sort of what I would call, you know, on-set practical effects work, which uh, which makes the, the movie seem a lot more natural and, and real. And I think it works real well for, uh, for this uh, pilot film. And, you know, his webbed hands, nothing was digitally added for that and that kind of stuff. Uh, so, uh, so I think it works really well. And, uh, and then they, uh, basically they take him back to this, uh, oceanic kind of institute place and she starts to run some tests on him and he's pretty cooperative at that point And he's not really saying anything. He had a pretty bad, they say a uh, bump on the head and they think he's, he's lost some memories of, of where he's from and, and things and other stuff. So, the, but anyway, the first uh, bit here in the next clip you're going to hear is that, um, as they go through and learn about him, this is when they discover stuff that he's he's basically built for the water and not for the land. After two weeks, he was able to leave the pool for short periods. And we began physiological studies. The evidence shows a humanoid being only marginally equipped for life on land. As tests indicate his eyes to be light sensitive, we have prepared a pair of dichroic glasses for him. He tires easily. Any physical exertion will exhaust him. In addition, we find that within 12 hours out of the water, actual physical deterioration begins. The first signs of which are the prominent discoloration of the extremities. Within 16 to 20 hours, if not returned to a water environment, the subject will suffer extensive skin cracking, pulmonary insufficiency, cardiac arrest, and finally death. However... Doctor, uh, perhaps you could finish off with the technical side of this presentation, uh, the Admiral. The presented. Admiral's doing just fine, Ainsley. Go on, Doctor, and take your time. However, in the water, a different picture emerges. He appears to be perfectly adapted to aquatic life, displaying great strength and agility, the chest cavity has gill-like membranes in place of normal lung tissue. Skin appears humanoid, but with dolphin characteristics. No keratin layer in his skin? None. Eyes are cat-like in action, able to see at ocean depths in almost total darkness. Where are you keeping him? At the moment, he's in the testing lab. He's quite docile and cooperative, and he's becoming as curious about us as we are about him. Yeah, there's so what we find out is there's sort of a, a navy connection to what's going on here, and, and this admiral is kind of interested in Mark and and certain things you know that the navy does and 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 is involved with would certainly be helped and aided by someone who could uh, do what Mark can do in the water, and they um, they it turns out this admiral uh, you know he's kind of both good and bad I guess in a way. But he wants Mark to do certain things and kind of just listen to him and almost be like a Navy guy, take his orders. And the next clip here, there's a scene where Mark and him are talking outside. They're walking around uh, near near the ocean, actually, which is probably a mistake. <laughs> but and and the Admiral uh, is is kind of telling Mark, you know, this is the way things are. If you're here, you know, you're gonna have to follow orders and do what we tell you to do. And and that doesn't go over too well with Mark. And it's hard to tell in this clip, but basically as the, the admiral starting to uh, try to tell him, you know, this is what you're going to do for us, 
uh, Mark decides to, Meh, I've had enough of this, and he, and he makes sort of a break for it and, and heads towards the ocean to get away. And these guys eventually, he, he knocks a lot of them out of the way for a while, and, and then he, he, he gets pinned down by some of them. What you find out later in this series with Mark and uh, what of his, his abilities in that is that as long as he's been just recently out of the water but is on land, uh, he's pretty strong. He's a little stronger than your average person and capable of things. But the minute he's out of the water for too long, he weakens eventually. And uh, so, uh, so anyway, that gives him certain abilities out of the water too, at least for a short period of time. And he kind of knocks some of these Navy guys out of the way pretty easily, even though they eventually stop him from getting back to the water. And as long as you're here, you'll have to obey orders too. You understand? Better not. Ainsley? Stop. I order you to stop. You heard the lieutenant. You got an order to stop! Keep him away from the water! All right, buddy. Now just take it easy. So they, they stop him and then, uh, you know, get him kind of uh, back to his place. And, and he's not super happy about it. He's kind of swimming around like a, like a mad dolphin in his pool for a while. And Elizabeth tries to go and talk to him and, and, and sort of play a little uh, peacekeeping between the Admiral and Mark. And uh, keep in mind, up until this point, he hasn't really said anything in the movie. It's just all the looks and, and actions and things like that. There, he hasn't actually had any lines, the actor, Patrick Duffy. But he, he does a good job of portraying, you know, his his the way he thinks and feels. And there's a... One of the things I, I probably really appealed to me at first about this show is... is Mark Harris's character, you know, the man from Atlantis, is uh, he's sort of Spock-like a little bit. He he doesn't have very uh, obvious emotions. He's very contained, very cool and calm and, and logical and, and things like that. As the TV series went on, that kind of uh, slowly changes, and, and he sort of becomes closer to some of the people that are his friends and Elizabeth and other people that he runs into. And he becomes a little more... Um, you know, human-like, and and not just this sort of strange being from under the water. And uh, but that that sort of Spock or, or even Data from TNG quality to him, I think, works real well. And and it you know you wouldn't want him to be just like your average everyday person, and then also be able to swim and, and fast and and breathe underwater. You need to give him sort of this otherworldly quality, and and that works out pretty well. Here's the next clip. This, I think, is when uh, the Admiral is really 
pushing and trying to get Mark to help. Basically, there's this submarine that's gone missing with some people, and he wants Mark to uh, go down in the ocean pretty deep and, and help them find it. Mark, the Admiral came to see me yesterday. He wants to know if you'll help him recover the submarine. As a favor to him, not an order, a favor. I would like you to stay, too. But not like this. Only because you wanted to. Do you understand? Mark, I'm going to try to talk to the Admiral. To get an agreement between the two of you. Will you trust me? That way you both get what you want. Mark finds your sub, you let him go home. Doctor, if he's suffering from amnesia, as you reported, going home seems unlikely. Medical science can't determine the duration of his amnesia. But one thing's certain. Mark wants to return to the ocean. He wants to be free. And with no tether line. I'm sure he won't go in the water with it. You'll have to trust him. And with one supervisor, you. I'm the only one he trusts. Doctor, you better be right. This is the submarine that went down. Mark? There were two men on board, Commanders Hendricks and Roth. You find us a sub and the bodies of the men, and I'll consider your request. It's not a request, Admiral. It's a deal, or it's... Yes, Doctor. This man has a name, Mark Harris, and he has rights. I know his name, and I know his rights, and I don't need any redder orders from you. Yes. I say yes to the Admiral. I say yes. Yeah, that was a big part of the pilot, big scene there, because he speaks, Mark Harris speaks, the man from Atlantis speaks for the first time. Uh, one thing I was going to say, there are some uh, novelizations uh, that were put out of these uh, pilot movies, and they were eventually comics done for Man from Atlantis, but the novelizations are, are pretty good, pretty interesting. And one thing I was going to say that isn't described in the actual movie itself, but in the book, if I remember, it's been a while since I read it, uh, uh, but the name Mark Harris was uh, Elizabeth's, uh, she came up with that for him. And I think what it was, was she used to, was dating some guy that she dated for a while, for a long time. His last name was Harris, I think, if I remember right. There were two things. And I think Mark was a name she'd always liked, and she'd always had thought if she had a child, she would name him Mark. If I, I'm trying to, again, it's going by a memory from a while back. But there was some significance to why she named him Mark Harris, and I believe it was it was that, and there were two two reasons for it uh but i i thought that was kind of interesting and uh but uh, you know where did this name come from you know why did she pick that and uh, to call him that rather than just you know uh, fish boy <laughs> let's call you fish boy uh so uh, mark agrees to help them out 
and then uh, they go to this ship, uh, a Navy ship, and they're going to go out uh, into the ocean. And uh, I really like at this point where the where the pilot goes and where the movie goes because up until this stage they've been kind of poking and prodding Mark, and now he's getting out into his element. And the the Navy guys that he deals with out here are kind of fun, and they kind of joke around with him. And he and he, and he I think he learns some things from them too. So here's a a clip from uh, from one of the scenes when they first come aboard the ship, Elizabeth and Mark. Chief. Well, keeps the tails from getting caught in the cracks. You have tails? Yeah, they put them in the same time they put in the gills. I see. All oh, these divers and their jokes. Oh, by the way, Doctor, my orders show that uh, Mr. Harris isn't going to use a tether line. I take it that's not a joke. Correct. Nobody steps off 200 feet without a tether. Well, Mr. Harris does. This new equipment requires exceptional freedom. Now, are there any other problems? All right. I suppose you know the area you'll be working is close to the spot where the Sequest went down. We know. And where the Russian research sub was lost last year? No, I didn't. And a French sub went down there about a year ago. It's a very dangerous part of the world. So there's some nice camaraderie between Mark and uh, some of the the diving guys uh, on on this Navy ship that they're on. It's uh, it's nice to see that. Nice to see him being treated well, and and they they just don't know quite what to make of him. He he's very he's kind of like the straight man when, you know, they they they're joking around and he doesn't quite get it, which is fun to watch. And you know, he's he's literally a fish out of water. <laughs> oh, bad joke, right? Um, the next clip that I have for you. This is, they haven't really told anyone, they've been trying to keep it secret what Mark can really do. So they go down on this diving platform, two divers, uh, and uh, sort of Mark's little buddy that he, he uh, grows to know on the ship is down there with Mark. They both got diving gear on, heavy deep sea diving gear on this, and they're being lowered down this platform. And Elizabeth is talking to them via this uh, radio thing. And uh, she's telling the other guy that she's about, you know, you're going to be a little shocked here in a moment. And as they're down in the water, Mark basically uh, takes off all of his gear and then just swims away. And, you know, way down that deep, that's pretty deep for a, for a, for a diver to be out in the water with no gear on. And then obviously to swim even deeper is, is impossible and unheard of. And it kind of shocks him a little bit. And, and they... Uh, I think it's a fun way to do it, though, rather than kind of telling him ahead of time. It just sort of happens when he's down there. And this clip has just some of the more uh, more of the music as Mark swims off. Uh, the great music by Fred Carlin. I, I I have to dig around. I don't think they ever put out any kind of a soundtrack or music or anything for this show, but I, I've always really, really loved the music from it. And uh, you'll get a good taste of that uh, here as, as Mark swims down deep into the ocean where he's looking for this uh, lost submarine. Okay, Ernie, you're on station. Okay, we're hanging loose at 200 feet. We're gonna go take a little walk around. Come on. Ernie, I have to explain something to you. The special equipment Mark has is more special than we've told you. 
that will allow him to go much deeper than anyone knows. Okay. Actually, the whole matter is highly classified. Then don't tell me. You've got to know, Ernie, because soon you're going to see. Don't tell me nothing. I don't want to know nothing. Look, he's a terrific guy. Whatever he's had done to him is okay with me. He's my... Yeah, so Mark is, swims way down deep into uh, the part of the ocean here, like seven miles down, and uh, and his buddy there is shocked <laughs> when he jumps off that or swims away off that platform with no gear on. And, uh, you know, a lot of the swimming and underwater scenes and things like that where I think were very well done for the time in, the, in this show. And, uh, you know, Patrick Duffy, I think, does a great job here. He used to, uh, a couple of things about that, he, he sort of developed this strange swimming technique where his arms were were back kind of down at, at the sides of his body, and he would swim up and down uh, as a sort of almost a, an eel might or, a, you know, a certain fish might, not really a fish, but uh, I guess more of a dolphin porpoise where it, it sort of flips its tail, and he sort of does that, and uh, every kid at the time, you know, that was uh, in the water, you know, and knew this show would try to swim like that. And I, I used to be able to do it pretty well. And, uh, you know, I, I've always loved the ocean and swimming and just, just this, uh, this was a lot of fun to sort of play around with that. Uh, but so anyway, he would, he would do that, that, which I think was good. It was, you know, for him to not swim, you know, like using a normal, uh, stroke that, that, you know, people would do would just not look right. And I think they, they really were um were wise in trying to make him swim and and move differently a couple other things that uh to make uh this effect look good is that patrick duffy actually had to shave all the like hair off of the rest of his body except for his head you know his legs his arm his arms his chest for this show he was much of the time in the movies that they did and the tv show he was just pretty much walking around in swim trunks all the time uh, one of the funny things I found out, too, when I was doing some research for this podcast today was that he didn't, uh, at the time when he auditioned for this show and for the movies to begin with, he didn't even own, like, a uh, a swimsuit at all. He didn't, Patrick Duffy didn't have one. He actually had to uh, to to audition in a pair of his Fruit of the Loom briefs, and uh, so that was kind of interesting that, he you know, he didn't have a swimsuit, and then they eventually put on this he wore these yellow trunks with this sort of like conch shell 
diagram or symbol on on, the, on one of the legs, and it's spo- supposed to be sort of a some kind of Atlantean, uh, you know, piece of their language, perhaps or whatever. But uh, and he would also, like I said, when he was swimming, he would inhale water into his nose and his mouth to to not show that you know he was letting air out because that wouldn't really make sense. You know, the air bubbles would be coming out because he's supposed to be breathing water all the time, water in and out. No air should be, no air pockets or bubbles should really be coming out. Uh, but, uh, and then again, I told you about the contact lenses he wore. Those seem to, you know, were, were sort of a hit or miss. The same thing about his webbed hands. During the show, you would only see that occasionally when certain scenes would happen. But uh, So let's get back to the movie here. Now he's down in this, in this weird base at the bottom of the ocean. The submarine's there. There's all these scientists. And he runs into, and we get to meet for the first time, Mr. Schubert, uh, played by Victor Bono, who comes out to meet this new visitor that uh, is, is a bit odd and unexpected. It's a pleasure to meet you. I take care of our friend. Name Schubert. What? You're giving us a nice surprise. We expected four new members and we got five. Tell me, how did you manage to get here? I swam. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The fish told you how to reach our door. I do not speak the language of fish. The inner current took me to the deep sound channel and I listened to the whales talk. I felt the presence of your submarine and I followed it. You do a lot of that, do you? Following submarines through pitch black darkness at the bottom of uncharted oceans? (laughs) You're a clever fella. By the way, I apologize for that little problem, the identification band. Personally, I can't stand them myself. But most people here find they come in handy. You take mine. Tell me who you are and what's your purpose in being here. I am Mark Harris. You're quite an unusual fellow. We're gonna have to get to know you better. Get some rest. Later on, I'll show you what some peaceful scientists have created at the bottom of the sea. Yeah. So Schubert there, uh, just this larger-than-life sort of mad scientist character, really um, kind of fun and interesting. And uh, he's kind of a threat, but, you know, not super. I mean, what, what he's trying to do here, he's actually, actually trying to send this signal to uh, all the nuclear warheads in the world and basically have the, everybody, all the people and countries sort of destroy themselves and set them all off and have them all launch and, and blow things apart And because Schubert thinks the world is sort of gotten to a bad place and it needs to be sort of wiped clean. And, uh, of course, Mark uh, isn't, uh, he doesn't think that's such a good idea, so he stops him. He uh, he uses Schubert to, um, he has him flood all the, the underground base with water and that shorts kind of everything out and stops this uh, signal and countdown from happening. And, uh one of the interesting things here is there are these little bracelets that in that clip you you can't really tell what's going on, but Schubert's trying to put this bracelet on Mark, 
and he keeps kind of taking it off and giving it back to Schubert and all. These bracelets are some kind of control device that, that are put on these scientists that he's gathered together to sort of keep them docile and cooperative, and it doesn't seem to work on Mark. Uh, you know, one of the uh, advantages of being this uh, strange being from under the ocean, and this comes out in some of the episodes of the series, is that you know, if you need some weird little ability, kind of like Spock with his inner eyelid does, you know, that keeps him from going blind with bright light, you know, you can give Mark the ability to resist these little control bracelets. But the next clip is a, uh, this is kind of after uh, Mark has, has freed everyone, gotten them out of the base pretty much, and, and it's all flooding away, and Schubert has sort of a parting parting words Mark's trying to make his way out of there and and Schubert's sort of calling out to him once he eventually learns that that Mark and what it, what he can do what Mark's abilities and and uh, there's a char- there's a scene that I didn't get grab a clip but he puts Mark and this other guy in a in a cage and lower this lowers them down in the water basically to kill him even though that was the best thing he could do for Mark because it allows them to escape and uh, and that uh, but that was before Schubert learns about uh, that Mark isn't like your average everyday guy so uh Here's uh, Schubert saying goodbye to Mark. Mark, my boy. It was a valiant effort. Nonetheless, it was merely an effort. I look forward to our next... So there's a big explosion, and uh, you don't really see what happens to Schubert, but you uh, expect that he somehow saves himself and gets out of there, and Mark swims up. Even though he gets a little hurt from the explosion, he makes his way back up to uh, the ship, and, and Elizabeth and, and the Navy guys uh, pull him up and help him out of the water. And uh, and then uh, I'm not going to play this clip, but there was a clip I, I did grab but i'll uh, i'll save that one i don't need to do this but admiral and the admiral and, and mark kind of have a little a meeting and and mark basically says to the admiral you know you i'm gonna leave and Ad, the admiral's okay with that they shake hands and part ways and, and and basically mark wants to go home at least back out into the ocean and try to find his home he still doesn't know where that might be or where, where he's from exactly the last clip though that i am going to play that I got, I think, is a good one. And uh, what I really, one of my favorite scenes uh, or clips and, and things that happened in this pilot is this last clip and last scene. Is Mark is on the going on the is on the beach with Elizabeth, and they're trying to you know say goodbye. And Mark's going to head back into the ocean to pretty much disappear. And Elizabeth's not very, you know, she's kind of crying and unhappy, and Mark doesn't quite understand that. But then when he's out, after, as he leaves, he goes out of the ocean, and you'll hear some clips in here. What he does, he starts to remember everything that he experienced over the time he was with these people. And he realizes he needs to go back and, and, and learn more. So anyway, hear this. This is kind of a longer one, like about four minutes, but I think it's a it's a good one. So listen, and, uh, and I'll come back with some uh, final words and some other uh, things on Man from Atlantis water from your eyes twice explain 
Well, when you get attached to someone and you're close, you feel happy. And when you lose them, you feel sad. Sometimes you cry. You don't cry. I have something to say to you now. I shall call you Elizabeth. Keep your ears clean, Elizabeth. <laughs> Who taught you to say that? It's not a custom among divers when saying goodbye? I guess so. Taste of salt. I will remember you. Mark, 
I have not learned enough. Yeah, so that sets uh, that sets the stage for uh, for the other films, the other uh, TV movies that they did, like I talked about earlier, uh, and then uh, the uh, going to the TV series. Uh, and I already talked kind of about the the other films that that came out uh, that uh, spring summer. And then when it went to TV series. Um, it became kind of a little bit like a superhero to a degree. Uh, the uh, There were 13 regular episodes. They aired from September of 1977 to June of 78. Uh, uh, here's some of the titles. I'll run down the titles of these, and it gives you a sort of a feel for them. Uh, there was one called Meltdown, which was the first episode of the series. Schubert comes back for that one. Uh, also one called The Mudworm. That was also involving Schubert, I think. If I remember right, yeah. And then the Hawk of Mew, Giant, Man of War, Shootout at Land's End. That one I really liked. I thought that was a fun one. There was a, it was, it was, they found this sort of alternate uh, world in a way through, through a certain weird area in the ocean. Mark pops out into this area that's still sort of set in the Old West. And he discovers he sort of has this twin brother, brother that lives there. I always like that episode because I like Western stuff and then the, you know, you know, the man from Atlantis in the West was kind of cool to find out. And his brother doesn't realize uh, some of the things that Mark knows about himself. There was one called Crystal Water Sudden Death, the Naked Montague, which was kind of fun. That was uh, another thing where Mark uh, threw an underwater weird landslide thing that uh, Mark ends up in sort of the time and setting of Romeo and Juliet uh, in Italy. Uh, and they, uh, you know, they did that where they he would find these little weird portals or things would happen. And then he'd end up in a different world in a different time or whatever. Uh, the Western theme, the this Romeo and Juliet era. Uh, and uh, it was fun, kind of a fantasy take on things. Then there was one called C.W. Hyde. Hyde was, uh, or sorry, C.W. was one of the guys that, that worked with them uh, at this institute, sort of their boss. And he, he kind of gets his Jekyll and Hyde personality. Uh, there's one called Scavenger Hunt, uh, which is kind of what it sounds like. There's one called Imp. And, and that uh, that one was kind of interesting because it actually had Pat Morita in it, uh, if you remember him from the Karate Kid movies. Uh, and then there was one called Siren, which is about a sort of a mermaid siren creature that they find. And uh, and then the one called Deadly Carnival, which was uh, uh, kind of a weird one to end with. Uh, also sort of had Mark had a little bit of a love interest in that one. So not very many episodes, actually not even really a completely full season, but... Uh, it lasted, like I said, from the fall to the spring, or to the summer, or whatever, June. <laughs> a couple of other little tidbits about Man from Atlantis that I'll uh, mention here. Like I said, there were some books put out. Uh, uh, they had a, a little bit of a comic series also that was done by uh, uh, Marvel Comics. You can still find some of those comics and books on eBay. Uh, the, uh, the comic series was only like seven issues long, not very long. Kenner was actually toying with the idea of doing some action figures for uh, Man from Atlantis, but they never got past the prototype stage since the series really didn't last very long. It uh, had an interesting uh, following in things overseas. That actually, Man from Atlantis was the first 
Here's a good trivia question. Was the first American TV series to be shown in the People's Republic of China uh, in 1980? It was actually called The Man from the Bottom of Atlantic over there. And uh, so it was kind of interesting that that, uh, you know, one of the first first shows that they ever showed in China uh, back in 1980 uh, from from the United States was a man from Atlantis. Uh, it also was pretty popular in a few other countries. In the United Kingdom, an interesting thing is that when it would, when it first was airing on Saturday, uh, it was actually going up against Doctor Who at the time. And the the funny thing about it uh, was that uh, even though in the U.S. it hadn't had great ratings, uh, the series actually I don't know if every week it was on, but it actually was overall kind of beating Doctor Who. Uh, when it aired in the UK at the time, which was kind of interesting. The same thing actually happened again when they showed that old Buck Rogers in the 25th century TV series in the UK against Doctor Who at the time. Uh, so, uh, the, you know, maybe at this in, in the era now of Doctor Who, I don't know if that would be the case, but uh, so I thought that was interesting. It was pretty popular in, in Italy, too, I, I read. And, uh, you know, it's just a fun show. I, I think it's, it's great that it's out on DVD now. I wanted to mention one other thing that I just found out about uh, doing, again, some research for today's podcast is that Patrick Duffy, you know, he went on to star on Dallas, of course, and had his, has a pretty good and long acting career on, on that, and he's done some soap operas, I think, even in recent years. Uh, but uh, he is has been working on uh, some new Man from Atlantis novels. He wants to write this trilogy, a very sci-fi-oriented uh, uh, take on on the uh, the character. And the story, the last report that I see is sometime in about just a few months ago. I guess he has the first novel done, and I don't know if they're ever going to make it to publish stage, if they're going to get published. Uh, you know, the first one, I, I would think and hope so, you know, especially got it written. But I, I found uh, a little bit of a blurb on YouTube where he was being interviewed. It looks like at a recent convention somewhere where he talks just briefly about this. And uh, I thought I would share that with you now about him, uh, Patrick Duffy, writing some new Man from Atlantis novels. Uh, yeah, at a time when they weren't done. You know, I was probably, I think, the second superhero, other than Superman, who's always been around. But, yeah, that modern thing. Uh, yeah, and we did it so primitively. You know, it was before special effects. We couldn't Photoshop a single thing. You know, if I was wet, I was wet. You know, if I was underwater, I was underwater. Um, and it was fun. And I think we missed the boat, thank God, because uh, seven days after Atlantis was canceled, I signed my Dallas contract. So it was the perfect thing to happen. But I have negotiated the rights to The Man from Atlantis uh, in, in book form, and I've written the first volume of a triptych that I want to write, taking it back to pure science fiction. And we'll see. I may never see the light of day, but I like playing with that concept. So. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was cool. Pretty interesting and exciting kind of news for Man from Atlantis fans. It, just the idea that there'd be some more books to read. I, I've uh, I've always wished that would happen more often, you know. And uh, it, these days, I'm not sure how how hard and how much the you know the the rights to properties, especially a property like this, that's uh, what are we 35 about 35 years ago, right? Something like that. 35 years. This first was out. 
to to be able to get that, you know, because publishing and, and writing these days is very easy as far as getting something out there to do. You know, you can write a little book and stick it up on Amazon yourself and, and in digital form and, and, and sell it. And, and people are doing that. So, you know, the, the trick is to you know, get a hold of however you, whatever you need to do to get a property. I don't know for the average person who just felt like writing some, something fiction, like say from an old TV show, like man from Atlantis, you've got to be careful about obviously, uh, you know, whoever really owns the property. I don't know if it's Warner brothers or who, but you know, them coming along and saying, Hey, we want all your money that you're making off of this. I know there's a ton you can find out there well, not a ton necessarily. I haven't really looked into it, but I know there is some, you know, you can always find fan fiction, you know, free stuff that people have just written about uh, old characters, TV shows, comic related things, genre related stuff, uh, all kinds of things, you know, things where Man from Atlantis, you know, ends up on the Enterprise <laughs> or Star Trek meets Star Wars. There's tons of fan fiction that's available on the web these days. And but but to be able to have something a little bit more professional and published and, and, and something that more people can find easier uh, would be, uh, I just wish it wasn't so hard with uh, with rights and, and especially on a show that's 35 years old. So, But I love it. I, I love Man from Atlantis. Uh, I, I'm so happy the DVDs are out, uh, you know, the quality. I, I For a long time, I had these old, I had some stuff on VHS tape, and then I, I finally found sort of a, you could find for a period of time, and you still can, you could find quote-unquote DVDs of uh, these old shows online, you know, via eBay or other sites where they weren't really professional and weren't really official copies. They were basically people had taken old video they've recorded off television and put it on DVDs for people before things have come out on DVD officially. And uh, hey, you know, if there's no other way to get it and, and, and share it, I, I, I don't have a problem with that. I figure when I bought a set like that, I'm just paying for the people's time and effort of doing it. They're not really making any any money, if, you know, really on it. So uh I feel that's that's fine in my opinion, especially when before things have been put out. I always try to go back, like when a show is then put onto DVD officially, then I'll go and purchase it. But if it's not available, there's no other way. Well, what are you going to do? So, um, what else can I say? It, it's a great show. I, I if you've never watched it, I highly encourage. You can probably find enough clips and get a, a, even more of a taste for it on YouTube. And, and and I think if you enjoy, you know, if you don't mind the some of the, you know, the look of it and the style and, and a lot of things, you know, it, it's 35 years old. So keep that in mind. But I think the premise, I think the the acting and I think the stories are not too bad. Like I said, there's some clunkers in some of those episodes, but uh, it's fun to watch and, and it's fun. It's, it's it's sort of a for someone like me, it's kind of a nostalgia trip a bit, uh, you know, remembering back, you know, watching a show, watching one of these TV movies from Man from Atlantis, and we had a pool, uh, an above ground, not a, not anything big or great, but we had an above ground pool when I was growing up, uh, pretty much uh, all the time almost when I was growing up. That's when I got to really enjoy swimming in the water, and uh, I remember we'd, I'd watch one of these things and run out into the pool and, and swim around like, you know, Mark Harris did. Ah, uh, youth, ah, uh, kids, but uh, so anyway, folks, I, I hope you've enjoyed this look at Man from Atlantis. I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to take just a real, real short break, and then I'll come back, give you guys an update on what's coming up on the podcast for the next few weeks, and, and then we'll wrap things up for today. And uh, have your own show. It's really cool. And silly question, but were you a, a great swimmer? Did that help you get the show, or I what was, was it? I was extremely comfortable in the water, okay. and that was just a bonus. Uh, 
that was after the fact. I was cast for whatever reasons they wanted somebody like me to do it. And can you swim? And I said, well, I can't swim. I was not a competition swimmer or anything. Okay. I was a, a, an underwater diver. I mean, I was a certified Maui scuba diver. So that happened. But no, I was, I was hired. And then they threw me in the pool and said, let's see what you can do. But that's why they're stuntmen. And now people people know you mostly from Dallas, but do you hear from people still about Manson Atlantis? Always. Yeah? Always. No, it, it, most of the time, people will say, God, I love Dallas, I love the new Dallas, but I still... Yeah, that was just a little bit more of a YouTube interview with uh, Patrick Duffy on his time on uh, Man from Atlantis. So I thought that was fun to play a little bit more of that. There was also interviews on there from him way back uh, when they were doing the show with Mike Douglas and, and, and you know, it's it's real fun to see some of that old footage and uh, old uh, talk show stuff with uh, Man from Atlantis, the Man from Atlantis, Patrick Duffy who, of course, is on the, the even the new version of Dallas uh, these days, too, which I used to watch Dallas back in the day, but I, I don't really watch it, watch it anymore. I don't watch the new one. But All right, coming up on the upcoming weeks, uh, we'll be into February next weekend. This is what's coming up in February on Treks and Sci-Fi. So, uh, you know, make note of these. And if you ever want to send a, a clip or a comment about any of these subjects, feel free to send them to me ahead of time, and I'll kind of hang on to them or get them to the appropriate people. And then they can be used on the on the podcast. So next week, uh, just a late breaking thing, Joe or Billy Bob on the forum just recently. Uh, he I needed somebody for next week. Next week wasn't we didn't have a guest yet, but he's gonna do he's gonna look at uh, a movie called Robo Jocks, which I think is from back in nineteen. Uh, 89 and uh, it's it's not the greatest movie but I think it'll be fun and Joe always does a great job uh, he does uh, the upper memory block podcast on older video games uh, computer games uh, these days so check his show out uh, but he's going to be here with robot jocks a look at that film next week uh, in two weeks I'll be back on the 10th of February with a look at the TNG episode from season two called elementary dear data which is um you should know that episode that is one of the first kind of holodeck and, and sherlock holmes kind of take on things uh with data and pulaski and geordie uh it's a fun episode so that one's going to be in two weeks on the 17th of february uh, i'm going to call it the more dune show or dune more or dune two we'll call it this is going to be chris and brian again talking more dune about some of the other dune that they didn't get a chance to cover on uh, the last time they did a guest spot on dune uh covering some more about that uh, fun franchise so that'll be cool and i'm looking forward to that and then got a little uh, special different thing for you on the 24th of february i'm going to be doing a joint uh, podcast with the anomaly ladies with Jen and Angela specifically, and we're going to talk about Trek. And I think our plan right now is we're going to talk about one of the, uh, let, let the they're calling it their, they've done a, few, a couple of these, I think already on their own show on, Anom on the Anomaly podcast, but the worst of Trek, uh, we're going to have some fun th with that episode. And we're going to look, I think, at a TOS episode, not, not, let's just call it not a great TOS episode, but I'll leave that as a little bit of a surprise, but that's going to be fun. And it's going to be uh, the three of us talking about uh, some not so great Trek things. <laughs> so I'm looking forward a lot to that. So everyone, uh, Hey, uh, I hope everyone's enjoys this, this podcast this week. It's always fun to, to talk to you guys again. Uh, you know, go out and check out some movies, uh, check out some cool TV. Uh, the sci-fi channel has a great lineup. I think on Monday nights these days with, uh, this, uh, continuum TV series. Uh, this one was first aired 
in the UK and Canada, I think, before we are getting it. And uh, it, this week, I think we're on episode three, but I think you can get caught up online, I'm sure. It's a, it's a cool show, kind of a time travel thing, and, uh, and I'm really liking it. Being Human is back. Uh, the American version of that is back. Uh, I'm really enjoying that. And then, of course, Lost Girl, which is in, I think it's its third season now. That's back on also some Monday nights. Really cool uh, genre shows on the Sci-Fi Channel, and and always more to see. And I think that's it. So everyone, take care. I get a little shorter show this week than the last couple of weeks where we've had some long ones. But uh, I really uh, I've been appreciative of all the guest spots. Vartok did another amazing job with his Jerry Goldsmith uh, podcast, and, and the Deep Space Nine one with Chris was a lot of fun to do. So we kind of went a little long on those shows. So this week we we, we shortened it up a bit. But uh, next week, Robot Jocks with Joe, and I'll be back in two with that TNG Elementary Dear Data episode. I'm going to end the podcast with a little more uh, music here from Man from Atlantis. This is sort of a a, a reversion or a retake on on the theme music that I found on YouTube, uh, and I, I think you guys are going to enjoy it. So anyway, uh, thanks for listening. Talk to you again soon. Bye bye.
This has been a Rick Dusty podcast production.